You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Acts. Here's Nate. So at this point in the book of Acts, Paul is now in the midst of his second missionary journey. It began with his visitation of a few of the churches that he and Barnabas had seen established during their first missionary journey, but then continued on into Macedonia, where the city of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea were impacted, and then south of Macedonia into Achaia, where Athens and now today here in Acts 18, Corinth would be impacted. Now, Paul's attitude when coming to Corinth seems to have been a decided upon attitude. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3 and 5 he says this, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not with plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And over and over again, as you read first and second Corinthians, it appears that when Paul arrived in Corinth, there was some kind of shift in the way that he conducted ministry. Now, I know that many people believe that what Paul experienced in Athens was failure as a result of his methodology. There, when he preached at the Areopagus, he was quoting from their poets and speaking from general revelation and a little bit more of a philosopher in Athens in Acts chapter 17. And so some people think that when he left Athens and went to Corinth, that on his journey there, he made a determination to never follow that same course ever again. But from that point, Corinth forward to only know the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Um, And, you know, that, that may be, but to me, it seems more that the Athenians failed rather than that Paul failed. There is testimony there in Acts chapter 17 that Paul spoke of Jesus Christ and spoke of his resurrection, which of course you can't get to unless you're preaching the cross of Christ. So I believe that Paul never went anywhere without preaching the full gospel message. And I think that that includes Athens. However, you have to imagine that he would have been deeply saddened by all of the persecution that he just experienced in Macedonia and a lack of abundant fruit in Athens, whatever the cause may be. And so with that spirit, you know, having been persecuted in Philippi and in Thessalonica and chased from Berea by the Thessalonian Jews who were jealous of his ministry, and then down into Athens where he really didn't intend to go even originally and had a modicum of success in, Paul now leaves Athens and he arrives in Corinth. So it tells us that in verse 1, after this, 
Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, only 50 miles separated Athens from Corinth, but they were two very different places. In Athens, the focus was upon intellectualism, learning, philosophy. But in Corinth, the emphasis was on commerce, money, wealth. In Athens, you had about 10,000 people in population by the time uh, that Paul arrived there. And in Corinth, the city had gone through a revival and was up to probably about 200,000 people by the time of Paul. And it was an intensely licentious city, made so because of the great wealth that passed through there due to their geographical location. Most ships would not dare to sail around the southern tip of the peninsula there on Achaia. And so what they would do is they would bring their goods to one of the two port cities that was found in Corinth. And what they would do is these two port cities were on either side of Corinth. And basically you could drop off your goods on one side of Corinth and sell them, and then they would be purchased on the other side of Corinth and brought to the other part of the world. Or sometimes even smaller boats would be taken out of the water and travel the three and a half miles on rollers through Corinth and be plopped in the water on the other side of the city and be on their way without going through the dangerous waters to the south. But as a result of all of that trade and all of that travel, wealth came in. And with all of that wealth and with all of that culture, so also immorality came in. By the 5th century, if you were to Corinthianize, it meant that you were to be sexually immoral. So it was, you know, a city that was steeped in illicit sex and wealth and, you know, just a a lot of different things. So to leave Athens and go to Paul would have been a huge shock there uh, for Paul in ministry. So it says in verse 2, And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Now, I think that this married couple, Priscilla and Aquila, were incredible gifts for the apostle. Uh, Apparently, they became Christians at some point, whether they were already believers here is not mentioned, or whether they became believers due to the influence of Paul, But they connected because Paul, when he arrived in Corinth, needed to make some money. And he had learned, like young Jewish boys would, a trade, something that he could do in working with his hands. And so he had learned how to be a tent maker. And so he looked throughout Corinth for people who were tent makers and searched more than likely for a job. And he found this married couple, Priscilla and Aquila. It says that they were there in Corinth due to persecution from the Roman emperor Claudius. And there's even some speculation that that 
particular persecution from Claudius was caused because of an uproar or an instigation of Crestus, which some people think is a reference to the Christ. And so maybe because of Christianity beginning to spread in Rome, Claudius began to persecute the Jewish people. So there they are. They gather together. Paul, along with this married couple, Priscilla, the woman, and Aquila, the husband. This couple is beautiful because they are always mentioned together in the Bible. Never will you find one of them without the other. They became really an amazing ministry team. And it seems as if the church in Ephesus got their start with Priscilla and Aquila hosting them and pouring into them. They're also interesting because Priscilla is mentioned first in four of the six times that this married couple is mentioned in the New Testament. So twice it's Aquila and then Priscilla, but four times it's Priscilla and Aquila, which maybe marks some ministry gifts in her that were more notable, or some people think that maybe she had a a heritage, a family that was nobility. Nonetheless, they gathered together and they began building tents together. And, you know, Paul stayed with them and, I'm sure that he was a great encouragement to Paul at the right moment in uh, his life. And I think we should not forget that here you have a single man who is working so hard for Jesus. And to see him adopted and brought in by a married couple, I think, is instructive to us on how encouragements can so often work for those who are in the single state in the modern church, that so often a married couple or a family can be a great blessing to someone who is single and seeking to honor the Lord uh, with their lives. And so, verse 4, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, this is fascinating because it appears that Paul, before Timothy and Silas arrived, and you remember that when he was dropped off in Athens in chapter 17, he gave instructions to the people who saw him all the way to Athens to tell Timothy and Silas to come back to him uh, and to meet him there in Corinth. And so they eventually arrived from Macedonia, Timothy with the Thessalonian church and Silas more than likely with the Philippian church, and they report to Paul. And at that moment, something happens to Paul. It appears that before He was surrounded with Silas and Timothy. Paul was simply content to, on the Sabbaths, go and try to persuade Jews and Greeks at the synagogue. But when they arrived, he began to be occupied with the word. So he was stirred up. And I think that Paul was stirred up for a few reasons. Well, one is because of the good news that had been brought to him about the Thessalonian church. You know, they were a persecuted 
young group of believers. And when Paul heard that things were going well in Thessalonica and that the church was thriving, it brought great joy to his heart. Part of the reason that we know that is because he wrote First Thessalonians right here at this moment as a way to express his great joy at the news that he'd heard about the Thessalonian church. And then also, it's very likely that they brought, Silas and Timothy, that they brought financial aid to Paul. Uh, He might have been able to cease making tents and focus exclusively on the ministry work there in Corinth. And then also, I think there was just the stirring up within Paul's heart because of the companionship that was his in Christ with Silas and Timothy. These were good men, good friends, and they stirred up his heart to serve the Lord. And so eventually, verse 6, the Jews rejected him and his message, as was often the case. And so he shook out his garments and said, your blood be on your own heads. In other words, I'm innocent I've been made innocent because I have preached the full message of the gospel to you. And he left there, verse 7, and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So now, Paul begins to turn his attention to the Gentile world, and a few of them, significant people, they begin to get saved. One of them, a neighbor to the synagogue, Titius Justice, and then also the ruler of the synagogue, a man named Crispus. They believed in the Lord, and and many of the Corinthians were believing and getting baptized. And the Lord said to Paul, verse 9, one night in a vision. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So here we learn that Paul was struggling with fear because the Lord had to give him a vision to tell him, do not be afraid. Paul actually said to the Corinthians, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And, and why? why? Why did he have this fear? Well, he may have recalled the beatings that he endured in Philippi, the persecution that he endured at the hands of the jealous Jewish contingent in Thessalonica, Or the failure in Athens. He may have been depressed about that. He may have been worried over the Thessalonian converts. And he might have even wondered if in Corinth, the same inevitable pattern would follow through. Where the Jews rejected, some Gentiles received, and now a groundswell of persecution was going to rise up against him from the Jewish non-believers against Paul in his ministry. And maybe as he ruminated over that and worried over that, fear began to enter into his heart. So it is so kind of Jesus to give Paul a vision and say, don't be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. You know, the Lord so often will speak to us as his people about fear. This is one of the repeated exhortations all throughout the Bible. 
And so often the fear has to do with a fear of man in some way, shape, or form. And the antidote to our fear is to know that God himself is with us, that he's standing with us, that he's supporting us and encouraging us. And of course, Paul had the Lord with him because he was going throughout all the world to make disciples. And for that very thing, Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But this would have been such an encouraging word to Paul's heart. And maybe for you, as you listen to this, there is some area of fear in your own heart, your own life, that you really need the Lord to minister to. You need him to give you a vision or a verse. You need him to whisper into your ear, do not fear, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, do not be silent. Now, the promise that the Lord gives to Paul is also beautiful and astounding. He says, I have many in this city who are my people. Even the Corinthian city had many of God's people inside of it. You know, why would Corinth have so many pre-believers, so to speak, so many not yet unearthed Christians? Why would there be such a fruitful work that would happen there in Corinth? I think some of it would just have to do with the reality of the emptiness of carnality. And that, you know, even in a place like that, many people would come to know Christ. There'd be so much brokenness in that town and that brokenness would lead, I think, many people to have hearts that were soft to the ministry of the gospel. So Paul stayed there for a year and six months, which made this the second longest ministry of Paul's entire ministry career. And up to this point, the longest time that he stayed in one place, the only place that he'd ever stay longer would be the city of Ephesus. But when Galileo, verse 12, was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. So again, it's a kind of a here-we-go-it-again type of situation, the Jews beginning to bring persecution against Paul. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. Now, the book of Acts, especially from this point forward, is going to be filled with Roman authorities making comments about Paul, to Paul, about Christianity But the question is, why does Luke record them? And this one, it's fairly obvious why Luke would record this for Theophilus, who is curious about how the gospel spread throughout the world and what he should think and believe about Christianity. And what Luke records for us is that this man, a proconsul or governor of that whole state or region of Achaia, uh, named Galileo, a top Roman official. He's actually the brother of the famous Roman philosopher Seneca. His judgment here would not just be the private opinion of a wealthy man, but would be 
the legal opinion of a Roman official, and not just any Roman official, but a top Roman official, the governor of Achaia itself. And what he declared here is that Christianity is not an outlaw new religion. It's only a subset of Judaism. That's what he, why he's saying, I will not deal with it. I'm not going to deal with matters of your own law. When he says this, this is like a work visa that he is giving to Paul and to every future missionary throughout the Roman Empire. He is saying they are not religio licita. They are legal and can operate here in the Roman Empire. This would be a huge door as any missionary from this point forward has discovered the permission of the governing authorities to enter in and to preach is so important to the spread of the gospel. It, of course, isn't necessary because we will preach even if it is illegal in a country, but it is so much more helpful when you're allowed that free Rome, and that's what Galileo seems to be giving. And he drove them, verse 16, from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. So Sosthenes became the new ruler of the synagogue, apparently, after Crispus became a Christian. And he may have become a Christian himself after the Jews turned on him and beat him in front of the tribunal because uh, he's mentioned there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So Galileo, though, when he saw that, he paid no attention to any of this. He was unconcerned with trivial religious matters within uh, his own mind and heart. Now, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centre he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. So Silas and Timothy were likely left uh, there and went to Macedonia to oversee the churches. And Paul is traveling now and Priscilla and Aquila are with him. And when they get to Centre. He cuts his hair, for he's under a vow. Uh, this might have been a Nazarite vow. Numbers chapter 6 laid out this Jewish vow that sometimes would be taken, where for a period of time, a man would refuse to cut his hair or shave his head and would refuse to touch any alcoholic drink or even grapes by themselves, the fruit of the vine, and would also not touch anything that was dead. And perhaps that's what Paul had been doing, or a partial Nazarite vow where only his hair was involved or something like that. But this is a very Jewish thing. We don't know what the vow was that he had undertaken. But there at Centre, he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus. And he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So now Paul arrives in Ephesus. And this is just going to be a short little trip, merely, I think, a test for his later trip to Ephesus, sort of a dipping his toe in the waters of Ephesus to see what the temperature is like 
And so he goes to the synagogue and reasons with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, so now he's on the shores of the Mediterranean in northern Israel, he went up from there and greeted the church. That's a way of saying that he went to Jerusalem and greeted the church there and then went down in elevation from Jerusalem and went north another 300 miles to Antioch, which was where his home church was. And so that completed the second missionary journey of Paul. Now, verse 23, after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So now we have his third journey and the first description of it, it just gives us a very brief mention that he went through regions he'd gone through already, Galatia, Phrygia, visiting the churches, strengthening the disciples. Luke doesn't want to focus on those locations because they've already been reached and influenced by Paul, but he wants to focus on what God did in the city of Ephesus, which is found in chapter 19 and is rather astounding. But before he got to Ephesus, there was another man who was in Ephesus named Apollos. And so that's what Luke tells us about or who Luke tells us about in verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So here we have this very interesting man named Apollos. And uh, Luke records a few things about him. First of all, he was Jewish, but not from Israel. He actually lived in Alexandria in northern Africa. That was a place where you could receive a great education. He was eloquent and fervent in spirit. So he was a great speaker, had a real fire to him. And he was competent in the scriptures and spoke accurately or taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. But apparently what he said of Jesus was partial because Luke says he only knew the baptism of John. Perhaps he had learned from some disciples of John, who was, of course, incredibly popular during his day. And perhaps they had spread all the way down to Alexandria and taught him that maybe they even taught him that Jesus was the Messiah. But maybe he really didn't know about Jesus's death, his burial, his resurrection. So the full gospel he did not yet understand or know. He may have only heard of Jesus's earthly ministry. So he's still preaching John's baptism, which was not a baptism of union with God, but a baptism of cleansing from sin. So, you know, he's saying some good things, but not the best things. You know, John, of course, came from a logical outflow of the Old Testament, and from John is the logical outflow of Christianity. So Christianity is the logical outflow of the Old Testament. And, and Apollos was starting to connect those dots, but not all the way. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. 
And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. So, wonderful. This couple, Priscilla and Aquila, they pulled Apollos aside and his heart was open and they taught him about Jesus. They told him the way of God more accurately. They shared with him the gospel of grace. And he believed it and preached it. But then when he wished to go over to Corinth in Achaia, uh, they wrote letters saying to welcome him. And uh, he went and he greatly helped the church. And he became very effective and fruitful in Corinth. Uh, So much so that when the Corinthians, due to no fault that we can find of Apollos, when the Corinthians began to divide amongst themselves, Some said, I follow Paul. Some said, I follow Apollos. Some said, I follow Cephas. And others said, I follow Christ. So, you know, Apollos had become a very well-known figure by the end of his life there in Corinth. So there you have it now. The stage is set for the thing that Luke really wants to get to in Acts chapter 19, the work that God did in Ephesus. Apollos had been in Ephesus, but now he departs for Corinth. And Paul, who had been in Corinth, is now going to go to Ephesus. God bless you. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.